mold, it can be growing or not growing. Either way, it's a problem for us. If the particles are breaking off the colony, even if the colony is, quote, dead and not growing, we still breathe that in. If the colony had produced mycotoxins before that point had happened, the toxins are still going to be on those particles and we're still going to be exposed to them. I have not seen any product that kills mold, deactivates and disintegrates mycotoxins, and somehow makes the mold colonies just evaporate into nothingness. Until that product comes out, I'm going to stand hard on my opinion on this. And when it comes out, I'm going to invest in it. You're listening to Muscle Medicine, where we debunk the myths in the health and wellness world to bring you the latest updates in exercise, rehab, and nutrition from industry leaders. Join your host, Dr. Emily Kyberg, chiropractor and movement expert, as she brings you simple, actionable tips to reach your fullest potential. Hey there, Dr. Emily Kybert here with Muscle Medicine Podcast. Today's guest, Brian Carr, an expert mold inspector. He's the mold inspector you wish you had. I've had multiple mold inspectors and multiple remediators come in and kind of do a quick walkthrough, take like an hour at most, and then remediate and then not have the mold completely gone still have the family sick and have the mold show up in another test a couple years later. So Brian is really the mold inspector I wish every inspector took after. He has become the go-to mold and biotoxin resource for many medical practitioners, especially functional medicine doctors across the country. And he's helped over 3,000 hypersensitive individuals nationwide create healthier living environments that have allowed their doctors to help them get better. So he teaches mold-sensitive people, and if you're thinking, M, I'm not mold-sensitive, about 20% of the population is mold-sensitive, all the way up to 40% of the population. So he teaches mold-sensitive people, that might be you, (laughs) to find and remove mold and mycotoxins from their homes so they can get healthy again. He is a wealth of information. I love that he puts out so much content. So he has a course which I have actually taken. I will put the link in the show notes, Mold Masterclass. He has a company called We Inspect that actually goes into homes on a one-on-one basis. His inspections can be up to eight to nine hours, which I have never experienced, but sounds amazing. And he has a podcast. He puts out so much content. I don't know how he does it with a child called Mold Finders Radio. So today we dive into how to look for mold in your own home, why is it so important to find the source, what do many inspectors and remediators, what are their common mistakes that happen with bringing an inspector or remediator in? And it kind of, you know, I am in the middle of remediating my home for a second time, not super happy with my inspector and remediator. And so, you know, in some parts of this episode, we kind of dive into my own experience of what's going on right now. But I think it's a good example of, you know, kind of step-by-step what could happen to you if you find mold in your home and you have to go through the process of inspection, remediation, and then post-inspection and kind of what is the gold standard, what is protocol, and what could happen if you don't hire the right people. 
Mold definitely affects the muscle, the muscle health, the skeletal muscle, because it affects the mitochondria. So super important episode. I adore this guy. I think he's so great and just love all the content he puts out there. So enjoy this episode. Brian Carr, expert mold finder. Welcome to Muscle Medicine Podcast. I am super excited to have you on. I have taken your Mold Finders Masterclass. I'm an avid listener to your podcast, Mold Finders Radio. And I love you. You talk about how mold does not discriminate. So (laughs) welcome to Muscle Medicine. I'm really... It's like, I'm like giddy to have you on. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's what an intro. I'm super excited. And man, it's so cool. It's so nice to hear when people actually like listen to your stuff or like have gone through it. Cause you put all this like energy into it and it's very rewarding to hear that people find it interesting. So thank you so much. I'm really excited. Yeah. I, I totally understand. Sometimes you put stuff out there and you're like, it is a labor of love. <laughs> <laughs> so You talk about how mold does not discriminate and mold symptoms can really be tremendous and very person to person. Some people can be the canary in the coal mine. I feel like I am that person. Other people can be like my husband who can sit in a moldy room and, you know, have like a very fluid, clear conversation. And so your background is in mold inspection. And I think that's really important. You're not a remediator necessarily. You're an inspector. And I've heard that there's very few good inspectors out there because I've heard you talk about your inspection process. (laughs) And I have not brought in a mold inspector in my world to have the depth that you go through. So I love for you to share a little bit of like, for people who have an obvious water stain, there's probably mold growing back there. We've had Jill Krista on the podcast um, who spoke about that. For those who don't have an obvious water leak, but they might have some symptoms of mold or mycotoxin toxicity, how would you go about kind of detecting potential signs that there is mold exposure if there's no water damage in the house? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's like question number one, usually it's like, how do we find what's going on? <laughs> and it's, you know, you, you talked a minute ago about just like mold inspectors in general and kind of the, the lack of kind of thoroughness and comprehensiveness with them. I kind of think of myself more as, as a consultant, more than just an inspector, because, you know, a lot of inspectors come out and they're like, okay, we're going to take some air samples in a couple rooms and here's your lab results and see you later. And there are so many things that are wrong with just that one sentence that I said. <laughs> um, the fact that you know not a lot of time is being spent, not understanding where sources are coming from, using the incorrect sampling methods, and then not really having a plan of attack to give your clients. There's so much that you have to, to have to give someone as part of doing this, right? And and so that's a big problem. And you know, unfortunately, they're just there isn't a lot of folks that that really specialize in working with hypersensitive people, mold sensitive people. And it's so funny to me because when you say like mold sensitive or something like that, you think it's like the small group of people. So I did a presentation in February, it was Indoor Air Quality Association, the biggest association for our industry. And it was an advanced level course and it was teaching remediation for mold sensitive people basically. And so what I was trying to figure out at the beginning, because the room was filled with like inspectors and remediators that aren't like really in this world that much. And, and so I was like, okay, how do I 
kind of get the point across at the beginning that this is not just the one crazy client that you had that you think is a nut job, but it's actually a lot of people, you know? And so what I did is I added up all of the, so SIRS, 25% of the population has this, the HLA genetic issue that makes them susceptible. So there's that. Then I added up Lyme disease, autoimmune disease, and pans and pandas, just the numbers I could find, put them together. It was 130 million people in the US. It was 40% of the population. So what I did is I took a picture of a baseball stadium with like full of fans, which I know now like seems nuts, but like that's what I did. And then I put a big thing on the screen. It was like 40% of these people are mold sensitive, right? Like get it through your heads that this is not this like random little thing that we do for our one crazy client, but this is something that really should just be a standard across the board, you know? And, and so that was kind of how I started it out. But, you know, there's two pieces. There's the inspection side, there's the remediation side. And On the inspection front, I think the big misconception is that there has to be like a water issue happening right now for there to be a problem. And it's usually not super often that you see that, right? Most times it's historical water issues that cause the problem. And I I tell the story a lot to try to illustrate why this happens. Uh, When I first started dating my wife, I was like trying to get her to like me. So I bought her a bunch of flowers all the time and she'd hang them all upside down on her wall, you know, to save them. And one day I walk in her room and it just looks like this big morbid, like death room with all the dead flowers hanging everywhere. And so I, um, I was going to clean them up. I was going to get rid of them. I was like, I think I'm cemented in at this point. I think we can get rid of the flowers. And we lived near the water at the time. And so there's no air conditioning. So we had fans that were going all the time. And so anyways, I pull the flowers off the wall. Right when I pull them off the wall, the oscillating fan hits me. The flowers like crumbled in my hand. The fan hit the flowers. They blow all over the room. And it literally took me like a week to get all these little pieces and particles and stuff of these dead flowers out of the room, right? And so the reason I tell that story is like, think of those flowers as your mold colony that lost their water, right? Previous water leak that is no longer there. We fixed the water so we don't think there's a mold problem because there's no more water. But what happens is that that flower stays there. Like when you took the water away, it didn't just disintegrate into the air. It's still there. But what happens now is that when that flower was healthy, you could tug on it and it's not really falling apart. And when it dries out, the whole thing breaks apart into a million pieces. And this is why trying to find areas of water intrusion and historic water intrusion even more so sometimes is super, super important. And then it's, you know, then the question is, what does that look like? Right. And so Basically, you know, the clues could be small, but if you see, you know, staining is really obvious. If you see a water stain, that's an obvious thing. But there are the times like if you see paint peeling or chipping, or you see like a baseboard, like separating off the wall a little bit, you see like a buckle in your floor, it's like bowing a little bit. These are all like little clues that water may have gotten in there and caused those changes in the building material. And those are the places that we try to pinpoint to find where the sources of the problem are. And so you can't find the sources and you can't fix the problem. So if someone was going to bring an inspector in, mm-hmm. what kind of questions would you ask them? And what kind of things would cue off, oh, this is a good inspector versus like, eh, this inspector, I don't know about him. Because I think, especially for the mold sensitive population, which... 40%. Right. <laughs> you know, I'm wondering if the inspectors in that conference were like, what's brain fog? What are you talking about? I'm sure it's just part of growing up, getting old. I'm sure that was the answer. Oh, you get old, that happens. <laughs> but I, I think for mold sensitive people, it can feel like this crazy story in our head that doesn't feel like it's getting validated. 
especially when someone who's an inspector goes through your house or your apartment in like an hour or under an hour. Yeah. It's, that is so common. Like the idea that you're going through something and because somebody isn't feeling it. And it's funny because we have this 40% number. I I'm, I'm telling you, right. It doesn't mean all 40% of those people know what's going on. It just means they're susceptible to it. And so just like we said, like if I have brain fog or I have fatigue or I have whatever. And maybe I just think it's because I'm getting older or because of whatever. And you don't like tie it to that. You know what I mean? So even if your spouse is not feeling a hundred percent, they might not be attributing that to a mold thing, you know? And a lot of times the interaction between you and your spouse or your family gets really, it gets rough sometimes because they, they don't believe you or, or they're not supporting you or whatever it, it might be. And you know, the, the thing that helps the most is to show and to prove it, right? That's the thing that helps the most. Sometimes they're still not on board and that's another conversation. But if you can prove that there's something going on, then that at least lets, lets you see that it's not in your head, right? So when you're talking about like, what does an inspection look like and what should be being done? You know, first off, an inspection should never be an hour, right? So if we think about what we're doing, just a normal size house, you know, 2000 square foot house or a 1500 square foot apartment or wherever, you know, wherever you live and the houses get bigger, it takes longer, but you've got all of the space. You're literally looking at every wall and every ceiling joint and every cabinet and every closet and every bathroom. I mean, it takes time for me, the average to go through, I mean, a 12, 1300 square foot house for me, if there's some problems that I'm finding, I'll be there three, four hours, just in that size of place. Other times I'm in a place for eight or 10 hours, depending on how big it is. And it's, if you're not finding the problem, if you're not finding where the hidden sources are potentially living and and hiding, then any remediation you do, anything you do to try to fix a problem isn't really going to work because you're not actually addressing the problem, right? Very similar to health. If you're not getting to the root cause and it continues to, you know, manifest, right? Some questions to ask. I mean, the first thing is, have you, do you know what any of these illnesses that you have are, right? Whatever you're dealing with autoimmune, this, that, like tell them, have you ever heard of this? They haven't heard of it. Then they probably don't know how to help you. Right. Because, You have to interpret lab results in a certain way. You have to go through a house, you know, a more comprehensive nature. That's, that's the first thing. Secondarily, I'd start asking about more progressive sampling methods. So, and talk to them about like, what do they typically do for testing? If they say they do air testing in rooms, that's just an immediate no, right? The reason I say that I actually took a year of jobs that we did and in one one room in each job where I, where I felt really confident, like a sample I was going to do on a wall or a ceiling or a cabinet or something was going to come back with a problem. I took an air sample, like four feet away from it just to see mm. 80% of them came back false negative, right? So three or four feet away, there was a mold problem in a wall or in a cabinet, four feet away, an air sample showed nothing. It's because that's not the strength of those tests, right? They're really good at pinpointing hidden source. They're not great at understanding overall air quality and what you're exposed to. So if an inspector's telling you they're going to come in and take air quality testing, if they say air quality testing and, and just, just no, right? It's just not going to work. And then I asked them like, do you know what ERMI is? Have you, do you know what mycotoxins are? Like some of these things, do you test for them? How do you test for them? 
Do you inspect the air conditioning system? Do you test the air conditioning system? These are all things. If those pieces aren't included in an, in an overall assessment, then things are going to get missed. And what happens is that they'll probably give you some sort of plan, right? They'll probably say, okay, you just got to like fog your house and maybe clean this area over here and everything's going to be fine. And you're going to spend, you know, 10, 15, $20,000, whatever their plan looks like. And two weeks after it's done, you're going to start not feeling well again. And then you're going to think remediation doesn't work and you're going to think you need to live in a tent. And that's like the, <laughs> the progression. <laughs> um, so I've seen inspectors bring in kind of this um, thing to measure if there's like dampness behind a wall. Is that a valid test? So it's not testing. So it's part of the inspection process. So yeah. while I said that like you don't need current moisture for there to be problems, you definitely want to know if there's current moisture, right? That's so those are moisture meters that you can use. And so we definitely do is called moisture mapping anywhere where there's plumbing or where there's places where there could be leaks. So think like windows are basically holes in your building envelope. They're holes in the exterior of your house that they plug in with a window. So anywhere that you have a hole that's cut into the box of your house or anywhere that you have plumbing or anything like that, then you want to be using that just to make sure there's nothing going back there. Most times they're probably not going to come up with a wet reading usually. Uh, it doesn't mean there's not a problem there, but if there is a problem there, it's important to know that. The other tool that gets used a lot is infrared cameras. And so it's like, you could like look behind the wall, right? And it's like different colors in the camera. And some people think that like, you're able to see mold in these cameras. And I actually think of all the tools we have, the infrared cameras are the least effective thing because all they do is show you temperature differential. So infrared camera is hot and cold. That's what it's showing you. So you scan a wall and the idea is if there's like a cold spot somewhere, then maybe there's water there. And then you go hit it with a moisture meter and see if there's water there. But most times it's usually gaps in the insulation or just things that are creating temperature changes back there. It doesn't show you historical water. It doesn't show you if there's water there at the moment. So I know a lot of people like want like, do you use infrared cameras? I'm like, yeah, I mean, I do, but I mean, not really. Like, like I do, but it's not like the primary thing. You know what I mean? Right. I've heard on your mold master class about a cavity air test. And I know a lot, or just in my own experience or history with remediation, sometimes it feels like something gets picked up on an air test mm -hmm. and they're like, all right, we're just going to like start punching holes in walls to find it. And I'm like, there's got to be a better way. And I heard you talk about the cavity air test. And I was I actually brought it up to my inspector who had not heard of it. <laughs> oh, man. So, All right. <laughs> um, so can you can you give like uh, our listeners like a little yeah. a cavity, cavity air test? So a cavity air test is basically you're trying to test behind a wall or behind a ceiling. Mm -hmm. You're trying to find the source. So before we get into like how you do it, like think big picture. When we're looking at a house, we really have two goals. The first goal is to figure out where the problem is coming from. And then the second goal is to figure out how that problem has moved throughout the house, maybe in your heating air conditioning system. So you're trying to find source and then you're trying to find cross-contamination from the source, right? That's kind of the two goals. And so when it comes to source, most mold is hidden. You know, if you search mold online, you see all this black stuff everywhere. It's so not the norm. It's just, how do you, how do you portray mold in a blog post? You put a picture of a bunch of black stuff, right? That's just what you have to do because most of it's hidden. You can't see it. So 
the idea is that if we could pinpoint where the actual locations are, most of them are hidden, then we can put the remediation plan in place that gets rid of the source of the mold, and then we can clean the house appropriately. So if you're not physically seeing what looks like mold growth, which a lot of times you don't, what you're seeing more are these triggers of water damage, like we were talking about, like staining or buckling in the floor, or cracking paint or something like that. So then the question is, well, like, how do you know if there's mold? Let's say a ceiling has a water stain on it. Well, you do what's called a cavity test. So basically what you do, you put a little hole in the ceiling. It's like the size of a Sharpie pen. And then our air sampling pumps have an adapter tube that connects to the air pump. So basically hole in the ceiling, you put a little tube through the hole, and then that tube connects to your air sampling pump. So you're taking an air sample, but you're doing it above a ceiling, behind a wall. You're doing it as close to the source as you as you think that it is. That's where air tests is, are are really great and that's their big strength is to try to identify hidden sources where you think you know where it is or you have a clue of where it is. They're not at all effective putting them in the middle of a room and and hoping for the best. And so what you were describing was kind of the flip is like we did an air sample. Oh man, we did pick up something in the air. All right, where is it? And so we'll just punch holes in every wall trying to figure out where it is when it should be flipped. It should be we should be looking for where the source actually is. And then we should be figuring out how to clean the rest of the house afterwards. Mm. So I'm going to give a a personal example, because I think for people who are struggling, sometimes it's easier to kind of like work through mentally. So we did an air sample in probably like a five by five space that has our washer, dryer, AC unit, and boiler. Oh, wow. And Stacky Botrys came up. Okay. And um, Dr. Krista was like, ooh, that's not good. Yeah, that's not It comes up an air sample because it's really heavy and sticky, which means there's a lot of it. So I brought the remediator back in and I was like, or sorry, the inspector. And I was like, you know, why don't we kind of pinpoint where it is because there's no staining anywhere. Mm -hmm. And he had a swab and he's like, well, I don't know what to swab. And I was like, well, how do you know where this black toxic mold is he's like oh well i have a feeling it's like over there by those pipes so we're just gonna like tear the you know over there by the pipes and maybe down here by the boiler and i just like my my gut just like oh this does not feel good what would have been a better approach (laughs) yeah there's a couple things you could think to do in here it's a small space five by five is not big it's a little closet basically that you have your stuff in yeah You could just gut the whole closet, to be honest. Mm -hmm. It's small enough. It's not a huge job to do that. And that way, you know, you're exposing everything and you're making sure that you're just cleaning everything, assuming that it's there, right? That's one approach you could do if you don't know how to find it or if you want to kind of make sure you're going as far as you can. The other thing is really trying to pinpoint testing, right? So if you're in a room like, so you have a boiler, a washer dryer, an air conditioner and plumbing all in this room. I would be shocked if there wasn't any sort of water damage, even minimal types of water damage that aren't like commonly thought about in the room with all of that stuff going on. So the the thing would be to look through that, look for those signs of water damage, and then test the walls, the platforms, the ceilings, and try to figure out where it's coming from. In bigger spaces, that's more of what you would want to do because you don't want to say, hey, come in and rip open your 20 by 20 foot room everywhere, right. right? So the purpose of testing is to try to pinpoint where those locations are. It might require multiple samples. It might require a sample in 
two or three different walls and a ceiling in a room to figure that out. But when you think about the cost of remediation, now again, a smaller space is not as, as big of a thing, but in a bigger room, that might, to build a containment, rip everything open when you're guessing, that could cost you like three, four, five grand to do that. Or you spend a few hundred dollars on source tests to figure out where the problem actually is. And then you can diminish the remediation scope and you can save money on the remediation side. So the source test would be a cavity air sample test and a swab? Yeah. So, yeah. So those are the two types of source. There's really three types. So you have cavity air, right? Which we talked about little hole testing behind a wall, behind a ceiling, a swab. When you actually see something that looks like mold, the only time you're swabbing is when you actually think you're seeing mold growth, swabbing a wall without mold growth on it is not going to show you anything. Thing is a lot of times it's behind the wall, right? So you're going to miss that. The third thing is actually like source isolated area air samples. So take, for example, like a cabinet. So if you have a leak in a, in a cabinet, you can do an air test in that cabinet and shut the cabinet doors and source a small area, an isolated space. And you're not getting this, this huge open air that's diluting everything that's going on. So there are times in areas with like cabinetry, little storage closets, things like that, where it's a smaller kind of space where it might make sense to use an air sample in that manner. It's Mm -hmm. just the big, you know, in the middle of your room on a tripod type of air test that, that we would kind of stay away from. So any one of those three would work for source testing. There are even times where if you, if you can't go into the wall, you can put the air pump right next to the wall and bang on the wall. And then if anything comes out, it gets picked up in the air pump. Sometimes there's like a plywood wall behind your drywall, so you can't actually put a hole in it. And in those cases, you could do that as like a a workaround. That's like such a wealth of knowledge in that little (laughs) tidbit right there. After someone, so so I'll just, we'll continue on this road a little bit is, so they remediated, they just kind of started cutting around where they thought there would be this mold and I get a call and he's like, we got it. And he sends me photos and I go, great. Did you sample it? How do you know that is right? right? And I don't know if that is protocol or, you know, what, what is protocol to know that you've, he's like, we're going to do an air sample test and then we'll know if we got it. (laughs) Right. Why would you not just swab what you're seeing? Like, why is it so difficult? (laughs) Well, because he, he's like, listen, I've been doing this for da 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 years and I've never heard of that. And I was like, okay. So what would have been a, maybe a better or alternative approach? Well, so did they contain the room at all before they started cutting things open? They did. I wasn't there. Um, I don't know if it was like to protocol containment. I'm praying it is. Let's assume that it was. The The key is that if you know something is going on, you especially you did a test in there and you saw a stack was floating around, like you don't want to rip open walls and not have it contained because you're cross-contaminating. So let's, right. let's assume that that piece was done. Then when you get in there, if you did the testing beforehand, then you don't really need to do the testing when it's open because you've already identified that, yes, this ceiling has a problem. You would have known that already. So it's not like they're cutting something out to look at it. And then you're like, should I test this or not? At that point, you just, the protocol, we would have already written it at that point because we would have done cavity testing beforehand and figured that out. In this way, if they opened it, do you really need to test it? 
you could go either way on it. Now with you, because you're trying to figure out is, is this actually where the stachybotrys was, I would test it, right? Because it sounds like they're only doing like a small little piece of what's going on. And this is kind of a bigger issue with remediation. Like one of the big, big missteps in remediation is that they don't remove enough stuff. And mm. so they're like, oh, we cut out this little square that's like a, you know, one foot by one foot square and we got it and it's all gone. Well, do you think that air just stops moving it, from imaginary squares that are one by one foot? No, it's going to move through that whole cavity up there, right? If you had stack, if you had stachybotrys in a ceiling that's in a small room like that, I would have said to remove the whole ceiling because because it's horizontal and because it's going to be open up there, the spores and the fragments will be moving throughout that cavity. It's not just going to settle there. So what might happen is that he might see the physical darkness and say, okay, we got the darkness out, but what about the byproducts that came off of that colony? What's moved through the, the rest of that open ceiling space? And is there more up there that needs to be cleaned? And that's one of the bigger things that just gets overlooked. And, and I think a lot of it is because remediation companies the ones that aren't specialized anyway, they're really construction companies that come in and do demo and basic cleaning. That's really what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And so, cause they're not really going in depth and doing multiple stage cleaning processes and stuff. And if you think of it like that, then they're trying to win the bid to get your job. And so they're trying to diminish the amount of work that needs to be done in order to win the bid so they can get your job. And then they want to get out as fast as they can because they need other jobs to make money, right? Mm -hmm. So their whole kind of philosophy and motivation and thought process is in and out as fast as we can, do as little work as we can so we don't have to spend as much time. And that's kind of the process, you know? And that's why surfaces don't get cleaned right. And that's why enough building materials don't get removed right. It's because of the mindset of the company and their approach to business in general, right? Versus treating it like it's a, a medical job, right? Like we, we should be treating this as if we're in a hospital and needing to clean this the right way, because ultimately we're dealing with biotoxins potentially that are, that are toxic to living things that literally try to kill them. So if we know we're dealing with that stuff, then we have to treat it that way. And we can't treat it just like some random construction process where we're going to come in and out in a couple of days. Yeah that shines like a really clear light on remediation because for someone who is mold sensitive, going back to that feeling of overwhelm is like, usually it's like this team of like large dudes come in and they like <laughs> throw yeah. up some plastic and get to work. And you're like, like is, <laughs> it, do you have the right filters? The whatever the air scrubber is going on and is everything covered properly? So that's just such great perspective. It's tough. I had, so I just moved into my place. We've been here about a month now and we had under the master tub, which was going to be our daughter's playroom downstairs. We toured the house. No problem. Everything looked fine. I come back in on move-in day and there's water staining up there. Like, you've got to be kidding me. Like this place was good. And then <laughs> within two weeks, there's water staining that shows up. And so I, I call the landlords and, and I, and I kind of organize everybody to come out and open it up. And they were going to bring the plumbers out to open it first, which is fine. It's okay. Um, but I wanted to make sure that there was air pressure that was right, that things were contained. They were about to just walk in there and cut the ceiling open. You got to stop them, you know? Like, like, don't let them tell you that they know what they're doing. Like, listen, if you want to work with me, then this is how we're doing it. If you don't want to work with me, then go, take a hike. Like, I don't, there's plenty of you random remediation company out there. You know what I mean? So it's, it's tough. And it's tough when you feel like intimidated by people 
who are kind of pushy on like, no, we're going to do it this way. We're going to do it this way. That's really what Mole Masterclass was all about, honestly. It was like, it was trying to empower people to really understand the thought process behind the whole flow of things. Like how do things move? How, what's important to test for, not test for? What does remediation look like? So then in that conversation, you'd be like, no, you're following this plan. And if you don't follow it, then you're out the door, right? And you can feel empowered to have that ability to make those types of comments and not feel intimidated. Yeah. When should an inspector come, or is this even protocol? I don't know, to do like a post air sample test. Yes. And it's not just air samples, but yes, <laughs> yes. I did a whole podcast episode on this. Um, so think about what we're doing, right? So we find there's a mold problem. We hire a remediation company to come in and remove the mold problem. So post-testing is super important because again, we can't see all this stuff, right? The stuff that we can see is the stuff that's like significant. But when you're talking about random fragments and spores and stuff floating around, the stuff you can't see. So if you're going to spend the money on remediation to open walls up and do all that stuff, then in my opinion, you kind of want to make sure that the remediation company actually did what you contracted them to do. And so that's where post inspections and testing come in. So on the post side, and the post really depends on kind of how deep you're going into the cleaning. Let's just assume it's like a basic thing and we're not doing full house cleanses and stuff. We basically, we want to come in two days after they say they're done for those for those two days in between, at least two, it could be longer, but for at least those two days in between, they're running air scrubbers in the space because they're ripping walls out, they're demoing stuff. So you're creating a disruption. There's going to get stuff that gets in the air. We do need to make sure that gets cleaned. However, they weren't contracted to remove mold from the air. They were contracted to remove mold from where it was growing from because mold doesn't grow in the air, like light bulb remediator guys. And for some reason, like they'll push back on this. And it's just so funny. Like, you saw the reports, there was mold growing on surfaces, walls, whatever. Your contract literally says, we're going to remove these walls and clean this stuff. Yet you don't think that the post-testing should include testing the areas you were contracted to fix, right? So our post-process, it does include air testing in the containment because of all the demo that was done. You do want to make sure that you're not taking containments down and cross-contaminating if it's not ready yet. But what's more important is surface testing in there. You have to do swabs and surface testing on the framing and the structural components that they were supposed to have cleaned. And I can't tell you how many times I go into a containment and the air scrubbers are running. And, you know, by the way, if the air sample doesn't pass after that much time, then there's a big problem left in the room because you literally have air cleaning machines running 48 hours every second of the day. So if they can't clean that up and you go in and do an air test after that and it fails, then there's a bigger problem that's happening in there. Most times those tests pass. What doesn't pass most times if they're not doing it the right way is the surface testing, which is really the source and the crux of the whole thing in the first place. And a lot of times what they'll do is remove drywall, but they won't surface clean. They won't abrasively remove mold that's grown there. They'll leave debris and dirt and dust and everything in the containment. And all of that harbors all the contaminants. And so it's so important that the surface testing gets done. So the testing, when we go in, it's air tests, it's surface tests of the exposed framing structural components. And we also do an air test outside of the containment as well to check to see if there's been cross uh, contamination from kind of the ins and outs of the containment. Air scrubbers are protocol, correct? Yes, 100%. Yeah, <laughs> but also negative pressure. So not just air scrubbers, but creating a negative pressure in the space. 
most of the time. There are instances where you might want to go neutral pressure or positive pressure. They're very like specific. We don't have to dive into all that because it's kind of case by case. Most times you're doing negative pressure. What that means is if you have your containment built, think this like you know square room all with plastic, basically plastic walls, you want to make sure that everything that's happening in there stays in there. So what you do is you create a very small suction in that room. So all the airflow gets pulled into that room. It doesn't have to be super heavy. Heavy, but by just changing the, the pressure of the room a little bit, you can create a small suction coming in and that's going to limit what can pop out of the space more easily. So it's a combination of negative pressure and air scrubbers, both mm-hmm. of those things. Is the time period for an air scrubber, is it 48 hours or is it? It should be running while they're doing all of their work. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they run it for another 48 afterwards. Sometimes people don't run it during and, you know, I'm not there like we're not there watching them. You know what I mean? But as long as I come in and the air test clear, then that means that the air scrubbing has been doing its job. When we start getting into more in-depth stuff, air testing and and the swabs are just the first phase of post-testing. Then we go back in and do ERMI testing and mycotoxin testing after a second round of cleaning to really make sure that everything has been done properly. But that's like a more in-depth process. Is it possible to get like a false negative if you're doing a post remediation test too soon after the air has been scrubbed? And again, I'm not nearly as concerned about what's happening in the air test as I am about what's happening on the surfaces. Right. Like if we did, let's say we came in too soon, right? And let's say the air test just had like a little, it was a little elevated, let's say, like so the air needed to be cleaned some more, but the surfaces still had problems on them, right? Let's say the framing that was exposed, there was still, you know, aspergillus penicillin or something growing on there. They have to come back in and reclean all that stuff. You know, if an air test is just slightly elevated, but all the surface testing we do throughout clears, then what I'm going to say is run the air scrubber for a couple more days. And then I want you to come in and re-wipe down all the surfaces, damp wipe all the surfaces. And usually that's fine. So there are things you can do if you get in a little sooner to do that. And if they peak, the thing I am most concerned about is that the surfaces where the mold was actually growing got remediated. That's like the biggest concern. Yeah. So like swab testing is like, if someone doesn't do it, it's like a little bit of a red flag. Yeah. The thing is most people don't do it. That's the problem. Right. So (laughs) remediators don't want to do it because they're going to fail way more often. Mm. So it's very easy to pass air tests in a post because you have the air scrubber running and they're probably going to run it for even longer than a couple days, which is fine. Great. The air is clean. That's cool. But if you think about it, even if you have mold sources in that containment, but you're constantly scrubbing and cleaning the air, you're going to be erasing some of that in the air, you know? So air tests are very easy to clear surface tests. So if there's stuff on the surfaces, it's going to come up. And then that's where the remediators get really upset. If the expectation is a set in the beginning, And it's really important before the project starts that you let them know, this is what post-testing is going to be. Like, if you don't like this, then you shouldn't be doing this, this project, you know? Right. My heart is slowly sinking right now. (laughs) So they didn't put an air scrubber in and they only tore out part of the water damage. And I made them come back in and tear out all the water damage. And then I was like, listen, you need to put an air scrubber in there for 24 hours because I didn't know that it was 48 hours. But um, the first time, they didn't even leave an air scrubber in there. You're in New York? I am in New York. I'll give you um, something to talk to. <laughs> there is this white spray thing that I see sprayed on things. 
yeah. to kill mold. And I'm, oh. I think I heard it was either in the mold masterclass or your podcast that that is not, not so good. I don't even know <laughs> what it is. But I see a white spray. It could be like white <laughs> paint for all I know. <laughs> I talk about it all the time. It's, it's literally one of the like biggest problems with remediation is that they think that they're going to go in and there's this magic spray that is just going to kill everything and remove it all and everything's going to be better. And it's just, when they explain it, it sounds good. But then if you kind of just think, like put it into another scenario, like imagine you had a yard, a lawn, and you had weeds growing in the lawn and you just sprayed the weeds with weed killer. The weeds are still there. They're not going anywhere, right? They're just not growing anymore at that point. But remember earlier, we talked about that it doesn't have to be growing anymore, right? The particles and the fragments from the colonies, the branches and the roots and all that stuff is still there and that can get moved around. So in your yard, you need to pull the weeds, source removal. In a house that's doing remediation, you have to remove the mold, source removal. And so a lot of times what they'll try to do, they'll come in, they'll see my protocol, and they're like, oh, this is freaking nuts, we're not doing this. And then they'll come in and they'll sell the client on, listen, you don't need to do all this, it's gonna be cheaper, it's gonna be better, we're just gonna spray everything down, it kills the mold, it does all this stuff. And I had, I mean, there's just one project that so sticks out with this. They did this in, in this project. It was like a full house. They basically had, every room in their house had something that had to be done. So kind of the whole house was, was getting done. And I go in and walls were removed. All the debris was still there that was in the wall cavities initially. I'm looking at the framing. There's still mold, obviously, on the framing. And, they, and it was all painted. And... They're like, no, this is fine. This works. I'm like, cool. We're going to sample everything. And I asked the client, I'm like, listen, this isn't going to come back good. So, you know, the remediation company, do you think that they'll take my opinion or do we need to test everything and prove it to them? And she was like, we need to test it and prove it to them. I said, okay. So we tested everything and it was a freaking disaster in there. It was so bad. And it turned into this very contentious situation, like between us and them. But like the what I just kept going back to is like, guys, I'm not making this up. Swab, lab result, mold. Like this isn't, this isn't an opinion anymore. This is actually what's here at this point. And so that's what fogging and spraying, if you're not removing the particles, then it's a problem. So like mold, it can be growing or not growing. Either way, it's a problem for us. If the particles are breaking off the colony, even if the colony is quote dead and not growing, we still breathe that in. If the colony had produced mycotoxins before that point had happened, the toxins are still going to be on those particles and we're still going to be exposed to them. I have not seen any product that kills mold, deactivates and disintegrates mycotoxins, and somehow makes the mold colonies just evaporate into nothingness. Until that product comes out, I'm going to stand hard on my opinion on this. And when it comes out, I'm going to invest in it. <laughs> well, I love your approach of test, don't guess. And I think in a lot of medicine, especially in the functional medicine world, where you're really kind of deep diving into root causes versus just kind of like, well, here's some medication. It should make you feel better. Yeah. Um, I really love that you've applied that approach to inspection and then, you know, post remediation. I've heard some inspectors talk about how when we're talking, we're going to talk about aspergillus, how, listen, aspergillus is outdoors, it's indoors, it's lower indoors, the number is higher outdoors, so we're good. 
And I've heard that's not so true. <laughs> well, so Aspergillus is technically is called the genera in to make it easy. It's the category of, of the mold. Categories can have multiple species underneath them. So there are species of aspergillus that are very potent mycotoxin producers. And there are species of aspergillus that don't have a toxigenic capability in them, right? So if we're doing basic level testing, which is just swab testing and air testing, that's just showing you the category. It's not telling you what type is there at all in terms of species, right? In order to get to that, we have to do it's called PCR testing, and that's what the ERMI test is. So just quick background on ERMI. ERMI is, uh, stands for Environmental Relative Moldiness Index. It was a study that was done by the EPA probably now, maybe like 12, 13 years ago. It was 1,100 homes across the country, some water damage, some weren't. They're were trying to create some sort of like scoring index system to where you could do a test in your home and then see how it ranks on the scale and basically say there's a, a probability or not of you having a mold problem in your house. That was the goal of the test. The amazing thing behind the test is that the technology they use was this PCR technology. So your DNA formatting any piece of the mold structure that's there. So when you think of a mold colony, imagine a mold colony is like a tree. We've all heard of mold spores. So spores are the leaves of the tree, but that's only a small piece of the tree. There's branches, roots, bark, trunk, all this other stuff that's part of the tree. Those all carry the same DNA signature that the spore would, right? So in an air test or a swab test, they're only looking for the spore. It's only looking for the leaves. It's not at all accounting for any of the other, you know, 80% of that tree, basically, that is part of that problem. When a mycotoxin gets produced, it would cover that entire colony like lava over a volcano. So imagine your tree is just completely covered in toxins at this point, right? And so if you're relying only on air testing and surface testing, you're only looking for the leaves and you're missing a lot of the other piece of it. So the DNA testing, which is in the ERMI sample, it's looking for all pieces of that tree. I keep looking because I'm literally looking at a tree right now as I'm describing this. <laughs> and, and so it gives us a much better understanding a load. There's been studies that have been done that show that the actual fragmentation that breaks off of the colony, so these are the other components of the tree, the branches, the roots, the bark, all that stuff, can be up to 500 times the amount of spores that are there. And, and so if you think of that, like if you picked up five spores of stachybotrys, well then multiply that times 500 and that's maybe how many particles there are floating around that could have toxins on them, right? So it's important to understand that piece of the equation when we're under, when we're looking at the full scope of what your load and what that might look like. So when you're saying like, well, there's aspergillus inside and outside, like, sure. I mean, aspergillus is a pretty common mold, both inside and outside. If it is sourcing inside, it's a problem. It shouldn't be sourcing inside. And then we need to do more progressive testing in the house to figure out what types are here. And more importantly, we could then even test for the toxins themselves and see if they've been produced. So there's like kind of layers to, to peeling that mm, down. Yeah. I've heard some people who have talked about or want to be cost efficient and have asked, well, why don't I just remediate myself? It's so expensive to remediate. Why is it so expensive? I was wondering why, or if you could speak to like, why not to remediate yourself and why does remediation feel like multiple tens of thousands of dollars sometimes? <laughs> I mean, the first thing I say is, would, if you were diagnosed with cancer, would you just treat yourself? Like, 
the mold and toxins, these are literally biotoxins that are trying to kill you that are in your house. Okay. I personally wouldn't even try to remediate my own place on my own. And I know how to do it. And it's because I know that I know how to do it in terms of the steps and the order and stuff, but it's an art to go in there and actually execute, right? That's a whole nother thing. If you go in and try to do it yourself, there are going to be things that you just don't do the right way. You're probably going to be exposing yourself to stuff. There's just so many things that can happen in the process. I just keep going back to that. If you have some sort of medical condition that you've been diagnosed with, you're not then going to sit at home and start shooting yourself up with a bunch of stuff thinking you're going to do it because something probably is not going to work. <laughs> it could be a problem and you can make yourself more sick and that can happen to remediation too. So important to have people that understand the process in there that are doing it. And yes, it can be expensive, right? The same way that medical treatment can be expensive, but we're basically applying medical treatment to your house when you think about it that way, right? And I know it sucks and I know that it can be expensive in that way. And for some people, it doesn't make sense for them to do all of it. And maybe they wanna move or maybe they don't. Moving is tough because everywhere has problems. So it's not like it's just your house. There's always gonna be something that's going on. But to get it done the right way is important. And if you start trying to do these things on your own, then there's going to be steps that get skipped. There's going to be things that get done incorrectly, and then it could end up with more problems. Mm. Speaking of moving, and I asked Dr. Krista this as well, I was like, where would you move if you wanted to minimize your exposure? And I know this goes back to the idea that mold does not discriminate and it's found everywhere. And her answer was very interesting. She was actually like, well, high desert, like maybe Bend, Oregon, or like maybe Arizona, New Mexico. Um, I was wondering what your thoughts were on the same question. Yeah. When I go into homes, very rarely, and we do inspections all over the country. So my, my company, we fly people around. I'm interacting with people literally everywhere. So I see humid places. I see dry places, East Coast, West Coast. We've been to Hawaii. We've been like all over the place. And the reality is most mold problems are happening because of water damage in the house that has nothing to do with where they live, right? It has nothing to do with the humidity outside. 80, 90% of the problems are because we had a leak we didn't take care of, or the roof was doing something we didn't know about, or the sinks were leaking, we had no idea, or we had a flood 10 years ago and just didn't handle it, or whatever it might be, right? We have drainage around the house that's putting water under the house. There's all these things that are happening that have no correlation really to where you live, right? Now, yeah, I mean, perfect world if you could live in a drier place. I mean, sure, that's cool, you know? I personally would not uproot my whole life to try to move somewhere that I think is gonna be more mold-friendly because the truth of it is you might get a 10% bump in the environment where you are, but most of what's happening is because what's happening inside the house. Okay, you mentioned this in your most recent newsletter. For people who are extra sensitive, how do you know what to, let's say you took everything out of the house. Mm-hmm. How do you know what to bring back into the house if it's had exposure to mycotoxins or mold? Yeah. So it's tough because people are just so connected to their things. You know, it's fair. I get it. The first question that you have to ask yourself is not about what can I bring in and what can I not bring in? It's why am I going through this process? Right. If you're going through this whole process because you're dealing with a significant health issue, Sometimes you need to revisit the why on why you're doing this. Is this book that I have more important than the reason I got into this in the first place, 
right? Is this couch that I have more important than the reason I got into this in the first place? That's kind of the first thing I would say. And if you're framing stuff that way and you're, you're like, okay, but you know, some of these things are expensive and we went, so, so that to- totally makes sense. In my masterclass, I give a super in-depth breakdown of like how to categorize all your stuff and how to bring it back in the house and how to do it in phases and like all of this stuff. The general overview though, things that are porous and cushioned can't be cleaned. They just can't be. And the reason is if you have a cushion that's a thick cushion and you have particles, so think a mattress, a couch, you know, down comforters, pillows, things like that. So if you have a cushion and particles wedge into the cushion, when you sit on a chair, things get into the chair. You ever notice like when you sit down on a couch, like sometimes there's a time of day where the light's coming in the window, just right. And you sit down and you see all like the dust particles fly up in the air. So like that happens every time you sit and lay on stuff, you just can see it at that point. And so if you think of all that, if you had mycotoxins in the house or you had high endotoxin counts or high mold load or whatever, it's going to get into those things. And there's, if you think of like, well, how could I clean this? The only way that you could really try to clean it is to surface clean it because you can't get into the cushion. So you could try to vacuum it. You could try to wipe it down, but all the other layer in between, you're not going to get to. So those are the things that I would say, listen, if you could part with these, these are the things that I'm telling you right now that you'll never be able to get them hundred percent clean. Then you start getting into other stuff. There are porous items that are like clothing and stuff like that. And and I've seen washing clothes work, right? I've actually had a client that wanted to do pre and post testings. They didn't want to throw out their clothes. I'm like, awesome, let's do it. It'll give me a case study. And we tested ERMI. We tested mycotoxins on the front end. Mold was really high. There were toxins on the clothes. We washed them, literally just washed them in a washing machine. And their doctor recommended using ammonia and water as the detergent, which if people are chemically sensitive, that won't work for them. I actually don't know if it matters as much if you're using that particular thing. Mm. But what's happening is that your clothes don't have mold growing on them usually. If they do, they should be thrown out. Um, but if there's not mold growing on them, it's just that the particles that have been floating around have settled in the fibers, right? Where you can't get into the fibers and in, in cushions, you can in clothing. So basically what you're doing in a washing machine is you're power washing all your clothes. Water's going through all the fibers and breaking those particles out. And it helps to remove a lot of that stuff. So I've seen people that have been able to do that. Now, some folks, certain items they still react to. And if that's the case, maybe you need to, to get rid of it. But I've seen clothing be salvaged a lot from doing that. And then you start getting the items that are more like hard in, in terms of surface and harder surface items can be wiped and cleaned in a particular way. That's probably a lot to go into right now, but they can be cleaned, right? So there's a lot of stuff you can salvage. You just have to make sure that you're cleaning it properly. And then the next piece of it is then, okay, so how do I know that like this one piece got cleaned, right? And so this is where introducing things back into the house in kind of a systematic way is helpful. And I was working with um, one of the doctors here out in Orange County in California that refers us patients to work with actually did her house and she had problems. It's so funny. So many of the doctors are dealing with it themselves. So it's like, uh, <laughs> we've done a lot of that. So her house went through the whole thing, cleaning plan. She brought stuff in kind of systematically. She had this like antique dresser thing that has been passed down, like in her family. When she brought that in, she was reacting. She took it out. It was better. So the way that I would just big picture, just think room by room, bring one room in at a time, 
try to live with it for a couple of days. I know it makes the moving in process take longer. I know it sucks. You probably just want to get back in your house because remediation has taken some time and you're just annoyed. But here's what happens if you don't do that. If you bring everything in at once and something wasn't cleaned properly and you start reacting, you have no idea what's triggering it. And then you're going to think that the remediation didn't work. Mm. You're going to be like, remediation doesn't work. We spent all this money. We had the whole house cleaned and we're still feeling it. When if the house was post-tested and actually remediated properly and shown that it was clean, then it probably was your stuff you were bringing back in. So then the next thing you see, like in all the Facebook groups, is you have to throw away all your stuff because it's all contaminated. Well, is it though? Or is it that you just didn't separate it out and now you just have no idea of knowing? So you're lumping it all together and saying it's everything. So there's kind of like this approach to do that. Yeah. One last question. Yeah. You have probably seen some of the worst of the worst. I've heard of houses that are 100 years old and you're just like, oh my God, bold everywhere, visibly in like the basement. Do you have a certain message? Because I just going back to this idea that can feel very overwhelming to go through inspection and remediation or remediation multiple times. I know there's, I think you mentioned a statistic is like one in three or one in four have, have to remediate again. Yeah, I think Corey might have mentioned that when we were talking, maybe. Oh, okay. And that is there, because you have seen the worst of the worst and you have seen people get better, do you have like any sort of message of maybe hope (laughs) that it can be done properly and people can get better? It can. So so listen, I'll tell you this story. It's about this boy. He was 10 years old, lives on the East Coast, was referred to us by by a doctor who's one of the like kind of top mast cell activation syndrome doctors in the country said there was a mold problem in the house they had other people come in they couldn't figure it out finally they decided to have us come in we go through the whole house what's interesting is that the whole house actually wasn't a disaster the basement was really bad the air conditioning unit lived in the basement which means because that system lives in the basement, it takes in the air around where it lives. So a lot of people think that like your air conditioning system only pulls air from the vents and that's so not true. <laughs> like um, even if the unit was sealed tight, your ducts have leakage in them. It's like, it's just kind of a thing. So they're not ever completely enclosed like that. But the air conditioning unit was in a basement that had a bunch of problems. And so there's a couple things that happen with basements. One, the basement's the true bottom of your house and normal air pressure in your house is going to move everything bottom to top. So you already kind of had this big source of a problem in the basement that was moving upward just kind of naturally. But then the heating and air conditioning system was really pushing it everywhere throughout the house. It was kind of like Star Trek beaming it up and pushing it in all the different rooms. And so there's a couple things in the house, but most of it was the basement and the air conditioning system. So they remediated the basement. They fixed all the water intrusion issues. I didn't talk about the boy. I went straight into it. Okay, so here's real quickly on, on, the, on the boy. So he's 10 years old. Before they move into this house, he's like playing peewee football. He's like super active, like just kind of typical kid having a good time. They move into this house and over the course of a couple of years, he completely deteriorates down to the point where he's on a feeding tube and he's in a wheelchair. Oh my gosh. And so he goes from like, like super normal, fun, athletic kid to literally like a debilitated, just, I mean, you can't even believe it. Right. So, so that's the background. So we go through all this, they fix the basement, fix the waterproofing issue. So it doesn't happen again, replace the entire air conditioning system, all the, the ducts, the HVAC, we tested the system, found it was really contaminated. There was toxins in the system. There was toxins in the house and a couple other sources in the house. 
replaced the whole air conditioning system, then did a full cleaning of the house, which is the cleaning that's meant to remove toxins and these other things from the house. And within nine months, this kid was back up, out playing Clean with again. friends. Yeah. Off the feeding tube, everything. Wow. Everything, nine months. So I don't tell that story too much because most people aren't that bad. And they're like, oh, well, I'm not that bad, right? It's like, I try to think of stories that are more that you could kind of connect with a little more. But when we're talking about like the ultimate hope story, it's super active kid that at 10 gets put onto a feeding tube in a wheelchair and nine months later, he's out playing sports again. And it's literally from finding what the problems were in the house and fixing them, you know? Yeah. Amazing. Where can people find you? I feel like I'm everywhere right now. (laughs) I personally... I'll just give my own experience. I wish I had found Mold Masterclass six years ago, but where can people find you? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, just in terms of kind of day to day, I'm on Instagram at Mold Masterclass. You know, I share a lot of kind of like daily stuff on, you know, pictures of this, things of that, like little things I'm seeing. Also, pictures of my daughter, if anyone's interested, she's fun. And then, you know, my podcast, which I started about three months ago, maybe we're up to like 45 episodes right now. I'm doing it. I know it's pretty cool. I'm doing like two to three episodes a week. It's a combination of just things I want to talk about that I think are helpful, but I do a lot of Q and a too. So on my Instagram account, I'll put up a story like, Hey, I'm going to be answering questions this week. Shoot. And I'll get like 50, hundred questions or something of people. And then I'll go through and start working on them. So it's actually a way to kind of get access to even get your questions answered, which is cool. Our inspection company is called We Inspect. It's yesweinspect.com. So if you are interested, we do travel the country. Our whole company was built on that specifically. So it's made for that. And then something moving forward that we're pretty pumped about were where Mold Masterclass the one thing it didn't have was trying to like teach people how to go through their house. And I got so much feedback on the course of this is all great. Will you come look at my house? How do I find someone to look at my house? I can't find anyone to do what you're talking about doing in here, but I really want it to happen. And so we spent, I mean, I'm still working on it, but the last six months putting together a super comprehensive in-depth training program on how to go through your house. So just so you guys know, like, most houses are the same, right? They all have walls, floors, ceilings, roofs. Most buildings are the same. It's just understanding like how to go through them and what you look for. So when I first started doing this, when I was getting trained by my father-in-law on this whole backstory of when I was learning how, I, he would show me as he went through houses, but there was nothing like formalized written down. So I was like kind of taking stock in my own head. Like when I go into a bathroom, I look here, 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 and here. And these are the five things I look for. And then when I go into this room, I look in X, Y, and Z, and this is what you look for. And ever since then, as I go into houses, it's really systematic as I go through. I'm in this type of room. We're looking here. We're looking here. We're looking here. I basically downloaded all of that and created a blueprint that anyone would be able to follow to go through their own house. Examples of water damage, all the different types of water damage you could find and where you look in each house, in each room, there's really only 10 different types of rooms in any building. So if you could think any room I'm walking into is one of 10 rooms and in all of those rooms, I'm only really looking for five things and I'm looking in these places. So if you can narrow it down like that, it's actually super doable. It's like paint by numbers. It's just, where, where do I look and what do I look for? And that's what this whole program is. And we're going to be rolling it out in mid October. So I will be sharing that 
on Instagram for sure and and getting kind of the signups and everything on board for that. And then the last thing that you mentioned, you're you are getting the emails that come out multiple times a week it sounds like. I send four to five emails a week. I know some people think I'm nuts for sending that many, but I read I, all of them, so I appreciate it. I appreciate <laughs> They're it. They're very accessible. It's not like a dissertation. It's like it's, it feels like you're talking, which is yeah. nice. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, thank you so much for putting the information out there. A testament to how much people need the information is to get 50 to 100 Q&As when you throw it up on Instagram and you get them. I mean, people need the information, you know, I get yeah. questions. So <laughs> yeah, no, it's amazing. It's, it's fun. You know, I've, I've spent a lot of time in the last couple of years trying to build out like accessibility to people because there's just so many people that need it and there's not a lot of info out there so yeah well i can't wait for the mold finders method to come out and thank you so much yes thank you so much for having me i really appreciate it that's a wrap i have two truths that i fully believe in first to be one percent better every single day and second all feedback is good feedback because it helps us grow Why do I say this? If you're enjoying these conversations and you find this is adding value, send us some love by subscribing to Muscle Medicine Podcast on iTunes. And if you want to share your voice with the world and scream it from the rooftops and tell your friends, or you can just give us a little feedback so we can grow by rating and reviewing Muscle Medicine on iTunes. Thank you guys. So much gratitude. Dr. Emily Kybert here.